0: We have to have a better understanding of how initial conditions formed this group, how initial conditions affected the emergence of cultural characteristics that are growth-enhancing in some parts of the world, and cultural characteristics that are growth-retarding in other parts of the world. And we can build policies that are country-specific, region-specific, history-specific, so as to mitigate inequality across the globe.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world, so you can take your manager, due diligence, or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen.
2: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Coldine to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome
3: Kevin Coldiron. All right. Uh, Thank you, Niels, and welcome, everyone. Well, you're in for a treat today. We chose the name... Ideas Lab for this podcast series because we wanted to emphasize that the goal is to explore, uncover and explore new ideas for thinking about the economy. And we're going to do that today in a very unusual way, a way that takes us all the way back really to the origins of human civilization. And what we're going to see is that the conditions faced in ancient civilizations and the reactions to those conditions explain a surprising amount of the differences in levels and distribution of wealth that we still see in society today. And the person who's going to guide us in that uh, journey is Oded Galore, who's a professor of economics at uh, Brown University, and he's also the founder of Unified Growth Theory, which is a kind of revolutionary new take on economics, the goal tr- being to explain the full process of human economic development going all the way back through history. Um, his book that he's going to talk to us about today is called The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality. So, um, Oded Galore, welcome to the um, Ideas Lab podcast. It's a, it's a true honor to have you.
0: Well, it's a, it's a great pleasure to be part of your uh, mission to educate uh, the public about uh, deeper roots of inequality and wealth across the globe.
3: Well, we're, I, I'm really excited to to roll up our sleeves and, and dig into it. And, you know, the, the book is called Journey of Humanity. So I thought maybe we could start with your journey a little bit. Maybe if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little bit about your own personal background, how you got interested in these kind of longer-term undercurrents that drove um, economic development.
0: Well, so I was born and raised in Jerusalem, and perhaps uh, unavoidably, given the historical aspects of life, daily life in the city, I was gravitated towards uh, the understanding of uh, the roots of human behavior the roots of ethnicity, religiosity, and to a large extent, human prosperity. And over my academic career, I gradually gravitated towards the exploration of the deep roots of comparative development, namely why some countries are rich and others are poor, and what is the role of deep-rooted factors in understanding this vast inequality across the globe.
3: Was there something about the existing theory that you found kind of unsatisfying
0: that made you kind of want to look deeper? Yes. So to a large extent, when we consider inequality across the globe and we contemplate um, what are the sources of this inequality in the context of conventional neoclassical growth models, it is quite apparent that these models are not well designed to address these issues. These models, to a large extent, are predicated on being in the modern growth regime. And as a result of it, they cannot shed light on the origins of inequality due to the fact that part of this inequality, in fact, a large part of it, has to do with the fact that some societies across the globe move into the modern growth regime much earlier than other societies. And consequently, if we would like to understand the roots of inequality across the globe, we have to understand how factors that operated in the distant past affected the process of development in its entirety, how they affected the differential timing of the transition from stagnation to growth, and ultimately, how they contributed to the inequality as we see it across the globe today. So to a large extent, the development of unified growth theory was based on the conviction and based on empirical evidence that much of the inequality as we see today has roots that that can be traced to events and forces that operated in the distant past. And therefore, a unified theory of economic growth is needed in order to link the present and the past.
3: Yeah, that, that's a that's a really clear explanation. That uh, you know, traditionally um, we're you know looking at the world after it's industrialized and trying to understand uh, you know why it looks the way it does. And what you're saying is actually there's there's path dependency. The path to that industrialization and through it um, make a make a difference. So when you think about your book, what do you consider to be the you know, most fundamental insights that that it's generated?
0: So the book, broadly speaking, explored the evolution of human societies since the emergence of Homo sapiens in Africa nearly 300,000 years ago. And it is designed, as I said earlier, to resolve perhaps two of the most fundamental mysteries that surrounds the journey of humanity. What I will define is the mystery of growth, namely the origins of the vast transformation in living standards that occurred in the past 200 years after literally hundreds of thousands of years of stagnation, and the mystery of inequality, namely the origins of the vast inequality in living standards across the globe. And perhaps the most important contribution of the book is the realization and the advancement of this revolutionary idea that much of the inequality across the globe today can be traced to events that operated in the distant past, forces that operated hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and tens of thousands of years ago. This is incredibly important because it implies that if we wish to design policies that will mitigate inequality across nations, we will have to understand better the forces that operated in the distant past in the context of each individual country. And we will have to design a policy that is country-specific, geography-specific, culture-specific, institution-specific, so as to resolve much of the inequality as we see it across the globe.
3: Yeah, I I, I thought that that came across quite loud and clear that, you know, we've... We've attempted to impose various regimes on countries where we're trying to develop growth, and it's it's really been done based on what you said originally. This view of how the world has looked in the last two hundred years, as opposed to, you know, h- how we got to this space. Um, I, so I, I I want to um, spend most of the time talking about those two things: the uh, the forces that led to this, what I think you call it a phase transition, like the the, the phase transition from stagnation to growth Um, and then also the resulting inequality. But, you know, I think we need to be fair to humanity. Humanity spent most of its time in this kind of period of uh, stagnation, what you call the poverty trap. And could you just explain why? Or Why were we stuck in poverty so long? And it, it wasn't as if the population didn't grow it wasn't as if there were no technological breakthroughs there were in both cases yet there's these dynamics operating that kept living standards at least over you know a couple of generations basically mean reverting
0: uh, could you can you explain that that dynamic to us absolutely so in fact over 99.9% of human existence humanity is residing in a phase that can be defined as the Malthusian epoch. And this Malthusian epoch is characterized by interesting dualism. On the one hand, it is characterized by stagnation in living standards. But on the other hand, it is characterized by certain dynamism in the context of technological progress, human adaptation, and population growth. So at any point in time, Consider for instance humanity in Africa 300,000 years ago, there is a modest population that is operating in Africa at the time. But this modest population is equipped with a very powerful human brain that allows this population to innovate, not at the pace that we see today. Naturally, this is a time period in which one stone tool, is replacing another stone tool. And the progress is rather rudimentary and slow. But nevertheless, every progress permits more people to be supported. So when societies, where tribes, where families have greater amount of resources, more of their children will survive, more children will be born. And as a result of it, this surplus will be divided over a larger number of people. And in the long run, this surplus will be vanished, and resources per person will revert back to the previous equilibrium position. So over nearly 300,000-year period, we see this cycle that is operating in human societies. Humanity is innovating. Innovation leads into greater population growth. And as a result of it, resources per person are reverting back to the previous equilibrium position. So as I said before, to a large extent, over this time period, income per capita is stable, life expectancy is stable, but nevertheless, there's great forces that are percolating below the, below the surface, if you wish. Population is growing gradually, the pace of technological progress is, uh, is, is getting larger and larger, and humans are adapting to their geographical environment. Now, why is it so important? It is important because it implies that over the course of human history, over this 300,000-year period, despite the fact that it appears as if humanity is in a state of stagnation, This stagnation is only in the context of the material well-being of the population. But Technology is advancing, and the size of the human population is getting larger and larger. Namely, the potential innovators is getting larger and larger. So if we calibrate it for a moment, naturally, over this 300,000-year period, We are moving from stone-tool technologies that existed in Africa 300,000 years ago to steam engine technology that exists in the eve of industrialization. If we think about the period from the eve of the agricultural revolution 12,000 years ago to the eve of the industrial revolution, the population on planet Earth increases from about 2.5 million to about 1 billion people in the midst of industrialization, 400-fold increase. So there is great stagnation in living standards, but at the same time, great dynamism in the context of technology and population. And this dynamism, as we will discuss further, is critical for the understanding of the mystery of growth. Namely, it's critical for the transition of humanity from stagnation to growth.
3: I wonder if, and I, w- I want to then t- talk about this movement from stagnation to growth. But I was I wondered if you could give us a perhaps just another specific example of the Malthusian trap. Like I, I know this is a kind of a simple one, but you talk about the Irish potato famine and how you know it, the potato's not native to Ireland; it was imported, um, and it turns out it grows really well. And that, for a period of time, leads to income growth, population growth, and a seeming increase in living standards, but then ultimately a mean reversion. Could you talk us through, because sometimes I think just like the specifics of, a, of an example that that's, that's quite salient to everyone would, would bring that through more cl- clearly.
0: Indeed. So I think that, uh, as, as you suggested, the Irish example is is quite striking in exemplifying the forces that operated during this Maltusian epoch. So what do we see at this point in time? So potato that is native to South America is important, imported during the Colombian exchange into Europe. And this occurs roughly in the middle of the 16th century. It turns out that the soil in Ireland was particularly suitable for the use of potato. And starting from the mid of the 17th century, we see great replacement of native crops in Ireland with the potatoes. So fields that were previously uh, cultivated uh, using wheat are being replaced with the potato. Now, the population of Ireland in 1600 is about 1.4 million people. And over this time period, in which, in fact, potato is being utilized and being cultivated in, in Ireland, between 1600 and 1840, we see a massive growth, more than five-fold increase in the Irish population. The Irish population is growing from about 1.4 million people to more than 8 million people. But living standards are hardly changing. Namely, this New technology, these new crops are permitting more resources, but these resources are ultimately divided over larger and larger number of people, so resources per person remain largely unchanged. And interestingly enough, at a certain point, potato blight that is arriving into Europe and into Ireland over ship that is uh, sailing from North America is generating a massive destruction of the potato yield in Ireland and is generating, in the middle of the 19th century, the so-called Irish famine. Namely, potato crops are being destroyed, and again, what they generate is precisely the opposite phenomena. Namely, this destruction of resources is generating a massive decline in the Irish population, a decline of about 2 million people, One million died during uh, the Irish famine from starvation, and another one million migrated partly into England and mostly into North America. So this is a typical Malthusian fluctuation in which better technology permits more resources to be generated, but these resources are converted into more people rather than richer people.
3: So it seems to me and and in reading that section of the book and just and reading other examples that the key to escaping that poverty trap was getting to a situation where an increase in income did not lead to an increase in population. instead, it led to an increasing you know a, a increasing investment in a smaller number of children, basically an increased investment in human capital formation. Is that, would, do you agree, is that, is that the kind of the key step or one of the key steps for moving out of this poverty
0: trap? Indeed, it is the key step. So what we see in the course of human history is that what I define as the wheels of change, namely technological progress, population growth, and human adaptation are rotating and are reinforcing one another. As I said, initially, the pace of technological progress is very, very slow. The pace of population growth is very low. But nevertheless, over this 300,000 year period, this reinforcement between technology and the size of the population and the impact of the size of the population on technological progress is bringing about a very rapid pace of technological progress. So to a large extent, Humanity is reaching a tipping point in which the technological environment in which people are operating is changing so rapidly, so as to require human capital, broadly speaking, education, if you wish, so as to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment. And at this point in time, responsible parents realize that, in fact, rather than opting for a large number of uneducated children, it is time to educate their children. Naturally, education is costly. Their living standards are very close to subsistence. So they cannot economize on their own living standards so as to support investment in the education of their children. This forces them to bear fewer children. And this is critical, because for the first time in human history, population growth is no longer counterbalancing the growth of technology and the growth in income per capita. Namely, we reach this phase transition in which the Malthusian forces simply vanish. Namely, we do not have any longer the counterbalancing effect of population on technology and consequently technological progress, as we see in today's world, is converted into more prosperous people rather than into more people
3: what what i found interesting about your description of education and this may be taking us a little bit off piece here but it, it really was you know the provision of universal education was not a kind of a policy that evolved you know purely for the public good it was it was really a reaction to economic necessity capitalists were saying hey uh, we need an educated workforce but we don't you know if we educate them privately they can just you know take their capital and go elsewhere so they start lobbying uh to use a modern term lobbying politicians to to provide universal education so a a policy that we might with our kind of modernized look back and say hey that's a progressive policy in some sense (laughs) it was reactive to the underlying economic forces, and I th- I feel like that's a theme that shows up in your book a lot. That cultural aspects end up being reactions to initial environmental conditions. Um, so, anyways, do, would you agree with that characterization of of education and, and how it
0: developed? Absolutely. So. Naturally, there are different dimensions of education, and certain aspects of education were progressive and operated and were advanced because of uh, the ideas of enlightenment and other ideas uh, that can be associated with the progressive movements. But the particular aspect of education that I'm referring to, namely skills that will complement the production process, are entirely reactive. And in fact... The movement from education that is the privilege of the very few into education that is basically the uh, the privilege of the masses as a whole is occurring precisely in a reactive way. So as you suggested correctly, if you think about England in the 19th century, we see massive lobbying of industrialists in the British Parliament with a very clear outcry about the fact that the competitiveness of England with respect to continental Europe depends to a large extent on the skill of the labor force. And as a result of it, there is a need for a massive investment in education, education of the masses. But This education cannot be done at the level of the firm, at the level of the factory, because if you educate your workers, next day they can move to the nearby factory and your investment will be lost. And consequently, the industrialists are lobbying for free public education that will be be financed by the government as a whole and will ultimately benefit workers as well as industrialists.
3: It, it, you know, and since we're we're talking about Britain and and Britain being kind of the, uh, I guess, kicking off point of the Industrial Revolution, and a you know, in in some some sense, a surprise kicking off point, right? Because for much of its history, it, what you you might not have picked, <laughs> you know, Britain to be the starting point. It was a relative economic backwater, and you have an interesting. Um, you have an interesting section where you talk about the institutional origins of British ascent. And I, I think it would be nice to to talk about that. A lot of our listeners are British and, and we're, we're taught uh, about the importance of institutions in economic development. And you, you tell a nice story, almost that some of these institutions developed, not necessarily by by chance, but through somewhat kind of random political events. Maybe if you could outline that for us.
0: Absolutely. So, as you said before, to a large extent, when we think about education policies, or we think about uh, the emergence of institutions, or the emergence of growth-enhancing cultural traits, many of these traits are reactive many of these traits are emerging due to local circumstances. And this is true largely in the context of institutions. But there are some very interesting anecdotes in which institutions can be viewed as a random event that occurred in critical junctures in human history. And this is particularly relevant in the context of the emergence of uh, Britain and the fact that the Industrial Revolution occurred in England rather than in other places in continental Europe or perhaps in China. So as you know, the Black Death is uh, is decimating the European population uh, in the middle of the 14th century. 40% of the British population and 40% of the European population is decimated during this time period. And this naturally generates an enormous scarcity of labor in the aftermath of this event. So the Black Death is arriving to Europe in 1347. It ends around 1352. And as I I said, when it ends, there is an enormous amount of land that is, at the moment, require labor, and in the cities themselves, There is an enormous amount of occupations that require labor that is missing from these occupations. So competition is emerging, particularly in Britain, over labor in in the sense that it's a time period in which, in fact, industrialists, not industrialists, people in the urban sector are competing with people in the agricultural sector. And as a result of it, feudalism is in some sense under attack the feudals understand, I mean, the landed aristocracy understand that in order to compete over labor over this time period, they have to make concessions. And these concessions are ultimately leading into the decline of feudalism, into the emergence of property rights for labor in general. And ultimately, one can argue that this is leading into a sequence of events that are generating larger property rights, and into the emergence of industrialization in England rather than in other places across the continent. Now, the same forces are not operating, for instance, in Eastern Europe. And the reason is that in Eastern Europe, the urban sector is not very developed. And as a result of it, when labor becomes scarce, in fact, feudalism becomes even more entrenched because it doesn't face the competition from the urban sector that existed in the West. So this is one classical example about how random events that occurred hundreds of years earlier than the industrial revolution generated a sequence of events that potentially led into the emergence of broad property rights that were critical for the industrial revolution. But a few more if if uh, if you wish me to elaborate
3: well when i what i remember reading that uh th- those examples and you went through and you talked about how you know uh james the uh, you know basically emerged as the as the catholic king not a particular popular one so they brought over a uh, um you know william of orange to uh, to get rid of him and he did get rid of him um but he didn't have a power base um so he had to rely on parliament and so parliament being a You know, a representative of not necessarily of the people in the same way that we think of it today, but more broadly speaking, representative of the people, enacted laws that again further diffused power so that when Britain gets to the point of, you know, we start seeing globalization and you start getting these unequal, you know, terms of trade between Britain and its colonies, the wealth that Britain's extracting from its colonies isn't just being funneled back to the monarchy like it might be in spain and portugal it's getting more diffused within society leading to development of more human capital and kind of reinforcing that you know development industrialization i guess so i'm, I'm speeding through <laughs> a couple hundred years there but i uh really liked that um, that example Um, I wonder if we could um, you pivot a little bit and talk about two of the kind of longer term structural forces that still have their imprints on wealth and inequality today, uh, geography and diversity. And you talk a lot about geography and w- what I found most interesting was that and I, I may get this wrong, so please tell me if I haven't got this right, but my sense was that you're saying that geographical differences amongst societies led to different paces of switching from being hunter-gatherers to agricultural, uh, and that, that created advantages for certain areas for a time, but those advantages largely um, flattened out, and but what was left were... The cultural remnants of those geographic differences. And those cultural remnants continue to proliferate through time. And it's those key aspects of culture that end up having an important influence on the level of wealth we see. So, for instance, the level of kind of future thinking is, you know, in your book, you trace that back to geographic circumstances the the role of women in the workforce you trace that back to geographic circumstances and even loss aversion so I was wondering if if I've got that <laughs> reasonably correct if you could maybe explain say for instance how geography might lead to a particular culture having a future mindset or geography or climate might lead to women having a broader role in the workforce.
0: Yes, this was a very accurate description, both in the context of the transition to agriculture that had a short-lived effect on inequality and human prosperity, and the fact that geography, to a large extent, had a fundamental effect on the emergence of differential cultural traits across the globe. Some of these traits are growth-enhancing, and others are growth-retarding. So let's focus on, on the two examples that uh, that you uh, you illustrated. The first one is future-oriented mindset. So when we think about the world today, it is quite apparent that there are great variations in what one can define as future-oriented mindsets. Some societies are more future-oriented, have the ability to... Um, to plan for the future more than others. And we can see that there are geographical variations in this tendency. And in fact, to a large extent, the variations that we see across the globe today can be traced to initial geographical endowments across the globe. Let me give you a very simple example. Suppose that we focus on two societies. One society is societies of farmers, that can cultivate certain type of crops, say, wheat. And another society is the society of fishermen that, in fact, do not have the ability, given the, the type of land that they have, to have access to wheat. And as a result of it, they specialize on fishing. Now, the society that is engaged in wheat cultivation is engaged daily in decisions that to a large extent, are future-oriented. They're engaged in planting, and with some delay, perhaps half a year, harvesting. And ultimately, they're engaged even in the development of storage technology that will allow them to store grains for the next season or simply into periods of scarcity. On the other end of the spectrum, we see the Society of Fishermen. Their engagement is, in fact, very different. They engage in daily activity. They are fishing, and in the end of the day, typically, they will take the harvest and probably consume it or sell it immediately. There is no planning, certainly not future-oriented mindset. that is associated with this activity. And what empirical evidence are showing us is that if we look at individuals, whose ancestors originated from a place in the world where the incentive to be engaged in agricultural investment was larger, namely the type of crops that were native to their location induced them to be engaged in planting and ultimately harvesting, these societies developed over time the ability to Plan for the future that was transmitted intergenerationally and became part of the culture and part of the cultural heritage of these particular societies. So, as I said, to a large extent, when we look at the world today, we think about, say, second-generation migrants in Germany today, people that arrive from different locations across the globe, but nevertheless, they were born in Germany. So they say they face the same incentives as any other. They face the same education system, the same institutions. Nevertheless, we see that those that are originated from places where crop cultivation was less beneficial have shorter long-term orientation. Namely, this events is, in fact, culturally embodied, and it is persisting over literally hundreds of years, perhaps even thousands of years. So this is one example. The second example is about gender biases in society. So as we know, we see different levels of gender biases across societies that are reflected, for instance, in different labor force participation of women across the globe. And one can show that a significant portion of these variations in female labor force participation today can be traced to the adoption of the plow across the globe. And why is it so? So before the adoption of the plow, agricultural work was equally shared between men and women. Men did not have a comparative advantage in agriculture. But at the moment that the plow was invented and the plow was adopted in some places where the land was suitable for the use of the plow, Then the use of the plow implied the use of greater upper body strengths. It gave comparative advantage in agriculture to men, and as a result of it, it generated the division of labor between men and women. Men were confined to work in the agricultural field, and women were confined to work in the context of the household. And this ultimately persisted, and it is correlated with the degree of labor force participation of women across the globe.
3: And yeah, that, that's just striking. And I, I I think you were saying that even applies to, if we look at what might be considered to be single society, say for Italy right now, if you look at kind of Southern and Northern Italy, there's vast difference in, in economic performance, vast differences in wealth between the North and the South of Italy. And are you're saying that, that some of that in any case can be explained by the southern population you know by by there being less um, women participating less in the labor force and that being traced back to you know the nature of of agriculture hundreds maybe even thousands of years ago in that in that part of the you know uh, the italian peninsula is that correct
0: it is largely correct so when we think about the differences uh, within italy Naturally, these differences cannot be attributed to institutions. There is a single institution over uh, over the entire territory of Italy that is applicable for the North and the South. And nevertheless, we see that income per capita in the southern part of Italy is about two-thirds of income per capita in the North. And this led researchers over the past uh, many decades to ask what is the source of these differences between the North and the South, and many suggested that these differences can be traced to different cultural traits that emerge in the North and in the South. And to a large extent, the emphasis was on the fact that in the South, we see the emergence of what one may define stronger family ties that are causing transactions to be within their family rather than within the community as a whole, namely depresses trust in strangers and increases trust within the family. Whereas in the Norse, we see the emergence of one of what one may define as social capital, in the sense that the emergence of trust and civic participation that is ultimately conducive for economic development. Naturally, one can add to this precisely what you suggested, namely initial geographical conditions that led into greater suitability of land for the use of the plow in the South and ultimately lower labor force participation historically in the South in comparison to the North.
3: Given the, the stickiness of these initial conditions and the and the, the <laughs> stubbornness of culture, right? The culture just wants to, uh, you know, kind of reproduce itself. What does that mean for a Country like the U.S., which is you know sort of a real melting pot of cultures, um, does it mean we're you know likely just to have kind of pockets of you know pockets of culture that are very different, or can can it can a, a new culture kind of emerge, you know, through the mixing, uh, or is culture too sticky and too persistent to allow that to happen?
0: So so when we focus on a society like the United States and we conduct analysis that is based on second-generation migrants, namely individuals that were born in the United States but their parents originated elsewhere, we do see the persistence of culture that emerge in the parental homeland. We see it in the context of long-term orientation. We see it in the context of loss aversion. We see it in the context of uh, labor force participation of women. So to a large extent, culture persists, and it it would persist as societies or individuals are moving into a place like the United States. Nevertheless, since people are residing in a particular place for a long period of time, and any society is some sort of a melting pot, we will see, ultimately, some convergence of these cultural traits over time. So certainly, convergence is taking place. But at the same time, we will see the emergence of diversity that, to a large extent, can be very beneficial for the society. Namely, it leads into cross-fertilization of ideas that can be very beneficial in the context of innovations, in the context of technological progress, and in the context of productivity. But at the same time, as we know, it is not not one-dimensional, in the sense that this mixing of cultures that are entrenched into their views, beliefs, and uh, their desire for different types of public goods is at the same time a source of conflict different people have different political ideas different people have different desire for public goods and consequently this is a source of conflict so the diversity that is creating is created in this process of migration and otherwise is basically generating two conflicting effects that are um, that are operating at any point in time and can be beneficial or a, a, to economic development, provided they're balanced properly.
3: Yeah, that, that's a uh, that's a great segue into, into the last section I wanted to talk about, which is diversity. Um, so, you know, you just to kind of summarize, you've talked about how geography creates these, you know, initial conditions that leads to development of cultural traits, and these cultural traits, such as future thinking, women involvement in the workforce, those are sticky... And have long-term impacts on economic performance. Um, Then you also talk about um, the level of diversity and its impact on economic performance. And um, ultimately, you you have quite quite a surprising, almost shocking measure of diversity, which I want to get to. But you use Detroit as a great, um, you know, I guess setup for. The, what you just referred to as the kind of conflicting benefits and costs of diversity. Um, and since I just spent a weekend in Detroit, that, that resonated with me because I saw both those things. Um, so maybe you could just explain, you know, using Detroit as our, our lens, uh, just elaborate a little bit more on kind of the costs and benefits of, of diversity within a society.
0: Right. So... So as I said earlier, when we think about diversity, diversity is associated with conflicting implications for economic development. On the one hand, diversity is associated with cross-fertilization of ideas. If a city or region of the United States is relatively diverse, I would expect this diversity to lead into the emergence of new ideas. In that book, I discuss, for instance, migration, of, uh, of African-Americans from the American South, uh, in, from the rural area of the American South, into cities in the South, in the cities in the North, and the West, and the Northeast. And I, I basically illustrate how this migration is basically creating a neighborly interaction between African-Americans and Americans of European descent that is ultimately leading into the emergence of the rock and roll, which is basically a hybrid between the cultural traditions of of African Americans and the cultural tradition of uh, Americans from European descent. So this is an illustration of the beneficial effects of diversity. But around the same time period, we see in fact conflicts that are emerging between African Americans and Americans of European descent in the streets of Detroit. Namely, we do not see an unambiguous beneficial effect of diversity. We see the conflicting effects of diversity in any city, in any uh, region of the United States over this time period. But interestingly enough, when we think about diversity more broadly, and when we think about diversity uh, in the course of human history, it appears that the level of diversity that is prevalent at the moment in the United States is the level of diversity that is most conducive to productivity. Namely, in the Middle Ages, societies that had the sweet spot level of diversity, societies that has the level of diversity, that balance between the positive effect of diversity on innovativeness and adverse effect on social cohesiveness, were societies in Southeast Asia societies like China, Korea, and Japan. Now naturally, these are not societies that strike us as as diverse or optimally diverse, but at the time, the name of the game was very different. Social cohesiveness was much more important than innovativeness, and therefore they had the sweet spot level of diversity. But as humanity marched forward, and as technological progress became much more rapid than before, the benefits of cultural fluidity, the benefits of cultural diversity became larger and larger. And as a result of it, societies like the United States appear in empirical work as societies that are optimally diverse. Namely, they have the sweet spot level of diversity, that balancing between the two effects. And interestingly enough, as we move forward into an era in which technological progress may be even more challenging, it appears that societies that will be even more diverse may have the upper hand in the sense that, again, diversity will provide this cultural fluidity that will permit individuals and societies to cope with a rapidly changing technological environment. Yeah, that's that's
3: a an interesting message of, of optimism, right? Because maybe maybe and I, I might be taking what you've just said too far, but perhaps the what we what we observe now as you know less so social cohesiveness maybe that's just the flip side of um, what we actually need in order to you know to prosper in, a, in an environment that's more technologically demanding right so that's we're going to see more of that if we want if we want uh, more growth because diversity is we need more diversity to generate more complex solutions would you
0: absolutely absolutely and it suggests that the idea of the melting pot should be reevaluated in the sense that we do want to maintain a certain degree of diversity so as to benefit from this diversity in the context of innovativeness. We do want people to have common language, to have basically common rules of behavior so as to generate social cohesiveness, but we don't want this melting pot to crush healthy diversity can that can be beneficial for innovations and productivity.
3: So we, you know, from a, you know, social policy or whatever perspective that's hey um we need more diversity we need more in some sense more constructive disagreement and let's make sure that doesn't <laughs> spill over into to to anything uh anything worse what what in your view does that say about a country like China which has um you know exploded in economic development but doesn't strike me as particularly diverse, it still seems to value this kind of cohesiveness. Is it maybe falling, you know, further away from the
0: sweet spot as we go forward? Indeed. So the the case of China is very interesting because China is dominating the world technologically in the Middle Ages, but nevertheless, it is Europe that is taking off in the context of industrialization and is ultimately dominating the world in the 19th and the 20th century. Now, at a certain point, China is transitioning into the modern growth regime. At the moment that they transition, they operate very well because the transition took place and cohesiveness is very important in order to generate within a technological regime a greater amount of productivity than otherwise. But again, at the moment, there will be some perturbation in the technological frontier. At the moment that greater creativity will be needed, greater cultural fluidity will be needed, again, China will be left behind. In the sense that at the moment, they grow very, very rapidly because they made the switch. They, to a large extent, rely on Western technologies. And within this regime, they're very effective because they're very disciplined, they're very cohesive. But at the moment, there will be a need for. A new uh, a breakthrough, technological breakthroughs, again, they're likely to remain behind because they do not have the cultural fluidity that will allow them to adapt very easily to the new regime.
3: The, 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 in some sense, the ugliness of diverse societies. There's a beauty in it uh, that that uh, comes out eventually. Um, given that diversity is so important uh, to your conclusion. Tell us a little bit about how you measure it, and then, um, you know, to me, the, the fascinating thing is how it actually maps back into, really, the, the origins of the human migration out of, out of Africa.
0: Right. So, uh, so, so, one can measure diversity in different ways, but in fact, the measures that we have at the moment, or that we had in the past, were rather imperfect. To a large extent, these measures were measures that were looking at the degree of fractionalization in the society, the degree of polarization in societies, but they did not capture what I defined as interpersonal diversity, namely the degree of diversity within a given group. And the way that I measure diversity is a very different one. So, I rely on the idea that during the migration of anatomically modern humans from Africa, 60 to 90,000 years ago, individuals that migrated from Africa did not carry with them the entire spectrum of diversity that existed in the original African population. And why is it so? The original population was modest in size, the departing population was even smaller And as a result of it, the departing population was not a representative sample of the original population. That's a simple statistical theory. So people are moving away from Africa. They reside, say, in the Fertile Crescent, and they don't carry with them the entire spectrum of diversity that existed initially. They reside in the Fertile Crescent for a while, and they start to grow. the point in which the carrying capacity of the environment is insufficient to support a population, and then a new group is departing from the Fertile Crescent population. Some people are moving west into Europe around 45,000 years ago, some people are moving east, moving into Central Asia, Southeast Asia, and ultimately crossing the Bering Strait around 25,000 years ago, and into South America nearly 14,000 years ago. And the further they depart from Africa, the less diverse they are. And as a result of it, in order to get a measure of diversity that is immune from potential reverse causality, in order to basically assess the impact of diversity on productivity, I measure migratory distance from Africa as a proxy for the level of diversity in each indigenous population across the globe. And ultimately, I adjust this measure to take into account that populations started to migrate quite massively in the post 1500 period. So the measure is basically capturing this idea that during the migratory process that was sequential from Africa, the degree of diversity across human populations became smaller and smaller and smaller, and therefore, to a large extent, there was, if you wish, an optimal level of migration from Africa that was conducive for development, although this level of migration changed in the course of development, as I suggested earlier. Initially, it was associated with China today, and ultimately, once we adjust the composition of the human population to their ancestral origin, it is associated with the level of diversity in the United States. So
3: that, that's, that's fascinating. Um, so this you, you talk about this kind of hump, hump-shaped uh, impact of diversity on development, and we've talked about the sweet spot being you know, moderate in uh, levels of diversity, and that at exceptional levels of diversity, you get um, lack of cohesiveness, and at uh, very low levels of diversity, lack of creativity um is the is your measure of diversity something that the man on the street would recognize as diversity because there's so much talk about diversity in 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 everything nowadays um is there much correlation there between what we tend to think about as diversity which are sort of like physical features and i suppose cultural features as well and what you might consider your diversity proxy?
0: I think, yes. So to a large extent, there will be a very strong correlation. Again, my measure is based on migratory distances. These migratory distances will be mapped into some historical diversity that existed in each location. And ultimately, this historical diversity is interacting with the geographical environment of each society to generate the diversity that we see today. So it will be partly uh, observed diversity in the context of phenotypic expression. It can be diversity in the context of cultural uh, traits that are possessed by different elements in society. But as I said, it's a deep measure of diversity that is, in fact, correlated with ethnic fractionalization, with linguistic fractionalization, with uh, with polarization in society, etc. So it is correlated with many of the measures that are prevalent at the moment. But in fact, it's deeper than that. It is immune, as I said earlier, from reverse causality, which is very important. But in addition, it is a deeper measure because it allows us to understand the diversity within a given ethnic group. Namely, I can look at the Irish population in the United States and compare it, say, to the population of Swedes in the United States, or people that originated from, from uh, Sweden, and nevertheless suggest something about the inherent differences in the Swedish population r- relative to the Irish population. So this will not be observed in the, by the naked eye, but it is just another dimension. These are basically a complex, it's a complex measure that is capturing different dimensions and ultimately capture the complexity of diversity in human societies.
3: So we can expect uh, Brown University's admissions policy to look for a spread of uh, migratory (laughs) time distances for for their incoming freshman class uh, in the future. Um, I I wanted to just kind of end cuz we're we're getting close to to 1 hour. Um so if you were you know based on everything you you've described to us and you've thought about you were brought in to let's say you know I was originally going to ask about a particular country but what about just an area within a country say the Appalachian region within the US and you were brought in and said okay this is you know it's been lagging economically for uh, centuries, um, how do we go about designing a program to, you know, see if we can do better going forward? What what would be? How would you, th- you know, think about that process? I'm not asking necessarily for s- specifics, but just just what would be your mental model for saying, okay, this is how we should, we should ha- how we should think about it.
0: So, th- th- there are two important points that I would like to raise. The first one, given the fact that we see the legacy of conditions that operated in the distant past, as I said, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and in the context of the migration of humans out of Africa, tens of thousands of years ago, the question that emerges is whether initial conditions or history is a fate. Is it the case that, in fact, history condemned some of us to live in poverty and permitted some of us to live in great prosperity. And the important element or the important uh, contribution of uh, my book, The Journey of Humanity, is to suggest that to a large extent, history is in fact not a fate. Namely, by recognizing the initial conditions of each individual group regardless of whether this group at the moment is residing in the Appalachian Mountain or whether it is resided in Bolivia or Kenya or Germany, we have to have a better understanding of how initial conditions formed this group, how initial conditions affected the emergence of cultural characteristics that are growth-enhancing in some parts of the world, and cultural characteristics that are growth-retarding in other parts of the world. And we can build policies that are country-specific, region-specific, history-specific, so as to mitigate inequality across the globe. And let me be very specific here. So let's think about it in the context of education policies. So consider for a moment uh, two societies, say, the Chinese societies. And the Bolivian society, and uh, the Ethiopian society, so the Ethiopian society is largely diverse. It has a great amount of ethnic, ethnic religious fractionalization, one of the greatest one on planet Earth. And as we know, the Ethiopian population at the moment is mirrored in civil conflicts. Now, what type of policies would I advocate for this type of society? So. If we think about diversity in this type of society, what I would like to do is to assure that the cost of diversity will be smaller than otherwise. I want to create social cohesiveness. So I would like to take the limited resources that I have in the context of education and design a curriculum that in this society will foster tolerance, respect for difference, and respect for other ethnic groups. This could mitigate the cost of diversity and will allow the Ethiopian population to benefit from diversity in the context of cross-fertilization of ideas. But if I focus on China, the curriculum that I would advocate in China will be precisely the opposite one. Namely, in China, the problem is the lack of diversity, is over social cohesiveness that is, in some sense, preventing innovations from being created at the pace that they should be. And in this society, I would like, in fact, the education curriculum to foster critical thinking, thinking outside of the box, challenging the status quo, and consequently to generate diversity through the education system in a place that is missing. So again, with the same budget towards education, the curriculum in a place that is very diverse would be very different in the, from the curriculum in which the society is relatively homogeneous. Alternatively, if I look at a society that is suffering, say, from, uh, from the lack of elements in geography that train the society how to plan for the future, due to the fact that this is, as I said before, a society of fishermen rather than a society of farmers, again, the education system will will have to be geared towards instilling the ability to delay gratification among pupils, towards instilling the ability to plan for the future. This would be redundant in other societies in which, in fact, nature already trained the population. Again, given limited resources, we should prioritize these education resources so as to target the specific problem in each individual country based on the history and the geography of each location.
3: And it sounds like it for a country like the United States that's a melting pot, maybe you need different educational uh, emphasis depending on you know that particular population and its underlying you know conditions as you absolutely as you just discussed, yeah, absolutely. So, okay. Hey, well, listen, I um, I really want to thank you for taking the time to um, introduce your ideas to us, and we've really scratched the surface. And uh, for those listening, the book is called Journey of Humanity, and um, it's an excellent book. It's a it's a you know it's a, it's a very easy book to read. It's written in a really um, accessible narrative style, lots of good stories. Um, so I, I highly recommend it. And I just wanted to thank you uh, one last time for, for joining us. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure.
2: Thank you so much, Kevin and Ode, for a very insightful conversation on the topic of inequality. Ode truly has a fascinating perspective of what has been the forces behind the inequality we see today And the differences in terms of the levels of wealth and where it's distributed around the world can, according to his work, be traced all the way back to some really ancient features of human society, the geography in which the culture emerged and the level of diversity that a particular country or region ended up with, which interestingly enough also relates to the distance that they migrated. Perhaps an episode more on the geeky side of what we do but it is our aim to challenge you as investors to think outside the box, and I'm sure we managed to do that today. Make sure you go and follow Odette's and Kevin's work as well as getting a copy of their books because, as you can tell from today's conversation, some of these ideas and topics are not being discussed enough on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, thanks ever so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.